You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Lacrosse Boots. Now, if you guys haven't had the opportunity to check out the Navigator Series, it's a brand new lineup from Lacrosse. They have the Windrose for men and women. They also have the Atlas, and that's what I wore during my rut vacation this fall. Check them out. They're very comfortable. Uh, It's a traditional rubber boot kind of mixed with a traditional hunting hiking boot they've mashed it together and the outcome is the navigator series check it out at lacrossefootwear.com welcome to the land and legacy All right, guys, podcast welcome back to we're your host adam keith podcast. Podcast. this, this is, is your number one resource for all things really land. really if you're interested podcast, in conservation habitat management all the different hunting strategy and rural real estate talk this about it is a podcast for you. right here in this podcast all the way back, driving down Interstate 70 from uh, a consultation in kind of north central Kansas, and uh, I just I had a blast today. I got Kyle and Frank in the truck, and we're all plugged in, ready to do this podcast. What what was your guys' initial thoughts here um, coming out of the the this pot this excuse me this consultation, which was one of the one of the first. Um, real big emphasis on quail consultations that, that we've been able to be a part of. What's your guys' first thoughts? Well, for me, it's that this guy's not that far off. Um, he wasn't sure, didn't think he'd seen a covey in, in five years on one property, maybe a decade on another, and we saw a covey while we were out there, so that's a start. <laughs> that helps. <laughs> uh, yeah, but... No, there's there's quail around. There's some good-looking stuff on some of the neighbors, and he's pretty close on some of his stuff. Just need to do, you know, a little, a little adjustments here and there. But but he's close, so I'm pretty excited that we, you know, sometimes you're walking into some place that hasn't heard or seen quail at all. I mean, he he was saying, hey, I haven't seen a covey in several years, but he has spring birds whistling every year so mm-hmm. we know he's he's in the mix and he may even be producing some coveys but losing them in the in the fall and winter so he's pretty close yeah we saw two kind of different property types today we saw one that was heavily ag dominated uh, where uh, quail were nearby but where the potential to get a, a huntable number of quail based on on the landscape is, is possible but, but may be a little difficult uh, and then we saw a more native landscape a couple of properties that were were old native pastures they were I think soil bank type pastures so they had been native for a long long time they were native prairie 
they were cropped, you know, way back in the 40s and 50s, and then they'd been in native since the soil bank era in the 60s. And and um, those had really good quail potential with some tweaks. So it was cool to see quail management on two kind of different landscape types and then how we would attack quail management based on what is there available on those two different types. I think that uh, that's a really good kind of quick synopsis of the day. Um, but we're going to get really deep into the actual management of you know what the recommendations were for this landowner um, because you hear us talk about you know, let's say the the three big wildlife types that a lot of people are looking to promote quail deer and turkey and and everyone knows that there's a lot of crossover or potentially a lot of crossover um, in the management for these species they all have you know different elements that they they really need to persist but you know there there's a lot of things that they share similarities too and this podcast specifically as we're breaking down the property will really highlight just how similar the management can be for a quail that weighs six ounces and a 150 inch deer that weighs 250 pounds uh, but they're still utilizing so many of the same things and, and i think it's this hopefully this podcast is going to be able to just again highlight these property features vegetation types that need to be there um and and why they need to be there but just how stinking similar it is yep a lot of that played out today um i bet it's going to be a 90 percent if 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 he does the quail stuff we're recommending 90% 90% of the deer practices are already in place. Oh, yeah, There's right out of the gate. just a couple bells and whistles to put the cherry on top, uh, you know, if you really want to trick out the deer side. but Yeah, absolutely. Um, so you guys have quite a bit of experience from the quail side of things in this region um, as is. I've hunted this region for, for deer um, not terribly far, and Kyle, you lived up this region area um for several years and managed public ground up there so you know going into this kind of had a lot of um you know expectations for the region and and knew just pretty pretty much off the bat what we were going to face were there any surprises to you guys once you got out there um from what you were seeing maybe maybe it wasn't you know just these properties in particular but the uh actual landscape beyond the boundaries uh, I was uh, going into it knowing we were going into a good part of the world that had pretty good quail potential. Um, like you said, I, I lived up here for eight years. I mean, we were within 20 miles of where I lived for eight years and where I managed a lot of public land. So, But there's still some big differences in this part of the state. And sometimes you get into solid brome pastures. So I didn't know right. if we were going to be seeing solid brome pastures I guess I was pleasantly surprised to see that we were dealing with native pastures. Yeah. So that gives us a lot a lot easier road to hoe here. You know, we're not having to, well, we got to kill out this and, and try to get what we want. It's, no, it's there. We've just got to graze it the right way, and, and we're in business. So that was encouraging. Yeah, it was also encouraging to see that uh, we were in a pretty quaily landscape, if that's if that's a word. The, the landscape around had potential to have good numbers of birds. Several times, I know we said 
looked at each other and said, hey, I would hunt that patch, or I would hunt that piece, I would hunt that piece for quail. So we were going into a landscape where quail were already um, pretty much a part of the landscape, and so that whatever we did or recommended on the on the particular property owner, we knew that quail were going to respond because they were they were they were close and and that he was already in a in a part of the world where bob whites are pretty secure and that's that's becoming less and less uh, of a of a uh, of a thing in in the united states where bob whites are secure and in this part of kansas they're pretty secure we saw greater prairie chickens which were cool that was a first for me. Yeah, you yeah. guys were like, "Oh, prairie chickens," and I'm like, "Yeah, oh, that, there's that birds awesome. in the sky." <laughs> so, I would, I honestly would have no idea what they, what they were as they got up out of the uh, that big pasture there. I was like, "Holy crap, that's a new one for yeah. me." Yeah, yeah. So you'd have stood there, and not shouldered your gun if we were hunting. No, I mean, I would just been and in I amazement. Just been wailing away. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, "Hey guys, uh, good job, but uh, cool." Yeah. So, cool. so that kind of tells you what kind of landscape we were in, that if we can see prairie chickens on one side of the road and quail habitat on the other side, that we were in a diverse kind of open native landscape. And it, so to, kind of, to kind of paint that picture, guys, for, for you who are listening, you're like, okay, okay, you know, there, there's quail there, cool, prairie chicken, that's awesome. But, like, what does that landscape look like? And, and Frank, I asked you the question as you're like, I wouldn't be surprised at all if we start seeing or knowing that there's prairie chickens in this area and when i asked you okay what is that component or why is that you're like the amount of grassland in in this area and you know for for you guys in missouri who are looking to um promote prairie chickens you're talking like ten thousand acres of pretty heavy grassland component in that ten thousand acre let's say radius or circumference of a given location that's what's necessary to have the prairie chicken and we saw 16 in a flock and sure enough lots of grassland yeah yeah that's, that's how big it is right that's the key to having having greater prairie chickens is having lots of grassland and and uh, the landscape we were in today at least on one part of the of the tour um, had that component and that uh, coincidentally was the was the properties that had were the properties that had the most quail potential certainly certainly yeah absolutely i I think that it's just so cool to be in a in that different landscape like you guys are a little more uh prairie setting just where you live at compared to where adam and i live at um and so i don't get to be in that prairie grassland situation as much as i'd like to be um, so it's always a treat for me to be able to go to this portion of the world or just drive through the Flint Hills and see it all um, and just kind of look out the window and drool. But yeah. it's always fun spending time in a different landscape that you know is so productive and has different critters out there that you don't normally get to experience and or see. Well, throughout the United States, it's such an imperiled oh, ecosystem. Yeah. I mean, intact native grasslands are... are you know, have been reduced to a fraction of what they once were. So the further you go west, the, the more you get back into those still intact. But, yeah, it, it's a imperiled system across the U.S., and there's a lot of species that have suffered because of that. So to get to see these intact and get to see the associated species that are supposed to be there, it's, I don't know, warms my heart. Oh, we'll match in that. <laughs> <laughs> well, just uh, and here, here's a, a 
a great example just across the road from one of the properties where we actually saw the covey at you looked across and, and and part of that grassland that was i don't know we we could see a couple hundred acres um for sure but it was very threatened by encroaching uh eastern red cedar i mean it was being taken over in a few short years frank you said it that's going to be a forest it's it's not at all a grassland anymore but it should be and those those in this endangered uh grassland ecosystem i mean we saw it today even though we were in it we saw a lot of things that were trying to fight back and and increase the amount of uh woody vegetation that's growing in there and and they just need to be managed because we're losing them yeah yeah yeah, that was that was depressing to see that one piece of property and it was um and it was eastern red cedar and they had gotten to the point where there was there was so little grass underneath them that fire at this point couldn't control them. So mm-hmm. now you were at a stage where it's going to take lots and lots of expense to reclaim that grassland. And then so, depending on the landowner, is he going to is that landowner going to want to you know ex- put out that that level of expense to, to control that? Well, then that just causes problems for the neighbors because then you've got all the seeds and all the berries that are produced on those cedars and historically that was controlled by fire that was a right. that was a fire dependent landscape and that part of the flint hills is quite different than the central part of the flint hills the 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 big grand you know grasslands a lot of people think of the flint hills are are, are pretty much free of cedars because they burn annually in that part of the, the world well this is the northern part of the flint hills there's a little more crop ground uh, the fire culture probably has is lost there. There's not as much of the um, steer cattle stalking. It's more cow calf, so fire is less of a part of the landscape, and and fire is has has been much reduced up there. And it's very very evident in the amount of cedars, and and um, you know that's just going to cause loss of grassland. It's going to cause loss of production for the cattlemen. And then it's going to cause loss of usable space for quail and prairie chickens down the road. Well, you brought up a great topic um, that will help transition us into the actual recommendations um, for the property and, and the landowner itself moving forward to promote um, quail numbers, increase the opportunity and the productivity of the landscape for um, white-tailed deer. But then overall, which I really appreciate him saying, I just want to make I just want to make it better. I want to understand this land, how it functions or how it's not functioning and make sure that down the road long term I'm doing the right practices. So kudos to him for that. But Frank, you brought in the aspect of cattle. And I'll let you two kind of really talk about um, how cattle in this in this plan is going to play a really really critical role. Um, in the actual management of hundreds of acres for this gentleman. Um, and, you know, kind of break it down from where they're at now, what they were seeing, and then the tweaks to the actual cattle contract that's on these acres um, and what that's going to do for promoting, uh, let's say, a, a better grassland for species like quail, wild turkey, and white-tailed deer. So... This comes in really into, into play on, on in the prairie parts of, of the gentleman's properties. 
And so right now on those two fairly large pieces of property that, that we look at, they were already had grazing on them. Um, but one of them had a fairly high stocking rate, and one of them had a fairly moderate to low stocking rate. And um, in this particular, so let's talk about the one, Kyle, with, with, that had the, the fairly high stocking rate. It was a large piece of property, relatively speaking, for that part of the world. Um, so it already had the good components for, for raising decent numbers of bobwhite quail. It had native grass nesting structure. It had lots of forbs. But at the level that he was stocking rat, it was probably good for production. But when we were out here with five or six inches of snow, it was pretty stark landscape. And when you say production... You, are you referring to production for quail numbers? Yeah, I'm talking for about brood quail. rearing, yeah, nesting yeah. success, not production for cattle. No, 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 absolutely, right. yeah. So it, f- from a quail production standpoint, had lots of forbs, lots of bare ground that we talk about is important. Um, so they probably had quail produced there. But when we were out there today, probably wouldn't want to run a bird dog through there because we probably wouldn't find many birds. Yeah, so he had the elements. <laughs> um, he just didn't have them at the right levels in the right quantity basically there wasn't enough residual vegetation we're out they just had a big snow we drove through a snowstorm to get here yesterday and it was obvious he doesn't have enough residual vegetation for quail to be there in this kind of weather so so the cattle graze too much essentially they they have a too high of a stocking rate and they're not leaving enough residual vegetation he has um really good thickets on this property had Mm. lots of wild plum had dogwood. We even found witch hazel. Um, just a variety. Blackberries. He had, he had the components. It's native. We're not dealing, you know, it's native grasses and forbs. We're not dealing with brome or fescue or anything like that. So it's all there. It's just the structure isn't right for overwinter. Right. Uh, maybe it's right for production. Um, but if he's producing quail there. And we think he probably is. And here's some whistling, you know, in the, each spring. He's losing them to the neighbors for the fall and winter. Well, then where there was more residual cover right. where they would want to be, have right. to be, to make it through the winter. And some of these neighbors, um, you know, was, was CRP. So ungrazed mm-hmm. CRP. So to be quite honest with you, probably not ideal production acres because it's prob- a lot of those CRP acres are probably too thick to be good production need some cattle grazing but that's not in the crp options so you got neighbor he's losing coveys to go on the neighbors to to live in stuff that's too thick to produce quail but during the winter time but the springtime he probably has birds and then they're coming on to him to whistle and and make nests and so he's he's putting up all the production numbers but then losing them when he wants to hunt them they're on the neighbors so (laughs) yeah we we just you know, it's a pretty easy fix. We just got to figure out, all right, how do we keep these birds on his place for an extra four months? I mean, that that's what we're looking at. That's the recommendations we're going to provide. And, and how we would do that is we would enhance the amount of woody cover that, that he has. He's got some, some really nice woody cover thickets, shrubby thickets, as Kyle mentioned. We would do some things to enhance that. We would may, maybe spread some more throughout the property. There were some, some parts of the pasture that didn't have it. We would recommend scattering some of that out there. But the big thing we would do is we would, we would give him some options relative to stocking rates, 
and we, we would give him some ideas of what he can do uh, to reduce the stocking rates to help have that winter cover available. So when he wants to, and he, and he talked about he would love to get a bird dog. He doesn't have a bird dog right now, but he would love to get a bird dog and have the opportunity to hunt quail. Well, we want to have we want to provide him with with an opportunity to manage his property in a way where he can have these birds throughout the winter time when when his hunting season is on. Absolutely, and and, and there's even another play into into the whole cattle and the way you can manipulate or utilize the cattle as a tool. Oftentimes, there's that wildlife livestock conflict on properties, but I want to really reiterate the fact that the cattle are helping improve and providing a really big component for the quail to be able to be raised and nest successfully on the property. If it was just rank old CRP grass like the neighbors, there, there may not be the production numbers in this region, but the cattle are helping. It just needs to, the, the tool needs to be utilized a little differently to have the actual successful hunts for this gentleman on that property. But it's a win-win that the cattle are part of the landscape here. And, and for you guys, you know, let, let's throw out a couple species that you guys saw that if, if cattle weren't there creating the disturbances, um, consuming some of the actual grasses there, what were the species that help the quail out that are there because of the cattle? Oh, there was western ragweed. There was rigid gold, rigid goldenrod, mm-hmm. even so. Uh, partridge uh, pea, we partridge saw. Partridge pea, roundhead lespedeza. Uh, uh, yeah, so there was some nice uh, insect attracting forbs on this this site that you know grazing the grass uh, is letting these forbs express themselves. So um, yeah, we're not again not very far off from where he needs to be. Just just tweak the stocking rate a little bit, and and we're going to give him a couple other options that. Hey, if you can't do that, there, there's some give and take, right? There's some mm-hmm. income needs off of these this grazing contract and um, with his family. So if reducing the stocking rate turns out to not be an option, there's some other people that are in play with this system so to make and, and, it all work. Yeah, some of that can just be uh, well, it, as in rotating the cattle yep. through the pastures instead of them having access to the whole thing yep. throughout these the, the summer months. Let's utilize some of the old fence lines um all the pastures so instead of one big one it's three they all got water let's just rotate it differently and the cattle do different things at different times of the year in each paddock yep and we already identified those areas with him and we'll you know of course we'll put that in his plan but but those are you know here's option option one is ideal stocking rate option two is let's rotate through and make sure that this this paddock three is the critical one. That's where mm-hmm. most of your quail are going to be. That's where most of the shrubby cover, you know, however it plays out, uh, that we graze it at this time and to this level. So One of the key components that I want to mention, and we've already talked about it here, is we wouldn't roll in on this property and, and recommend no grazing. Right. That, would just, that would just be shooting ourselves in the foot from a quail production standpoint. Cattle are going to have to be a vital part of his property. He could have quail with no grazing, but it would take a lot more work on his part. So we mm-hmm. we see cattle as as a, as a vital tool in this part of the world 
for quail management, and and we fully realize that and recommend it. it it's it, it's a it's a win-win for for the pocketbook, but it also a win-win for quail. No doubt. So let's let's compare that to. Um, the other property where we actually put eyes on a covey saw signs of where they've been walking through the snow just from last night um what what did that scenario look like uh from a cattle utilization on on that specific property as as soon as we pulled in there we identified wow there's a lot more residual grass and forbs this has not been grazed as hard and we're we, we're talking, let's say, from like uh, mid calf to now we're up to the knee, mid thigh high yeah. grass. Yeah, and not solid rank that hot, but I correct, mean, there's correct. that structure. It it's obvious there's there's at least twice as much residual vegetation mm-hmm. from the, the farm we were previously talking about. So we immediately, in fact, we told him, "Hey, this is the amount of this is the vegetation we want to see." On that other farm we just came from. It's a great, it was a this, great illustration. This is what we're after. we got to get your stocking rate on the other farm so that at the end of the season it looks just like this. And five minutes later, we run into a cubby. <laughs> so, yeah, proved our point. Case closed. Yeah, so that is a great example where, and I don't know what, I don't know what his uh, situation, if, if it's the same tenant that rents both p- pastures, but the second property, in most years, could use maybe a slightly heavier stocking rate. We could have, I would have preferred to see a few more Forbes show mm-hmm. up. Nothing drastic, maybe a couple head more. You're of, being of picky now, is what yeah, you're saying. Yeah, I'm, I'm getting down to like this is primo stuff. Yeah. Um, so perhaps there's a way of moving some cattle off the other property onto this property. You know, some things that, w- that, that can be done. But as it was, it was pretty good. And and seeing that covey quail um, only only you know helped to emphasize that. Now th- there was some there were some things that we could do to increase or or in some cases eliminate the the amount of cedars that were on the property or increase the covey headquarters that were on the property and spread them spread them further, ha- have them better arranged spatially. But from a grass and grazing standpoint, it was pretty good. So, another great segue. Man, you're on fire tonight, Frank. I always am. <laughs> always am. So, this, this specific property, it, it, was, um, it was 80 acres, and there was kind of two defined 40-acre chunks, but pretty much had woods around each 40 acres. But in the very center was, was pretty thin with actually the woody cover, the covey headquarters that you're referring to. So... Walk us through from a prescription and a recommendation to increase the amount of um, you know spatial cover that's necessary for the quail. What was what were you guys referring? You know, not referring, but recommending him to do um, in those areas to increase the cover. So this old hedgerow split the two forties, and the hedge trees—they're not huge, but they're they're beyond being useful for quail they're they're too tall so we were already recommending cutting down these hedge trees chop and drop provides some immediate kind of shrubby cover edge feathering type surrogate shrubby cover Uh, then also the benefits you get some birds landing on these down trees and depositing seeds just various birds songbirds morning doves whatever right and and they're 
pooping out plums and dogwood and sumac. So over time, you get natural shrubby thickets growing up. As Mm -hmm. these down trees decay, you get these natural thickets coming up. Well, then also uh, across this 40, so most of this just had these these tree rows on the perimeter, and they really didn't have anything out in the middle. So we we recommended, you know, you can take the treetops out of a few of those or some of these bigger cedars and drag them out and, and space them out every 7,500 yards and, and scatter some out in the middle. They're just called down tree structures. And if you want to take it a step further, you can, you know, we may recommend that he even spray out a little spot and, and plant some plums and then put some down tree structures around there that, again, the birds will sit on and deposit. So adding that woody component across the openness uh, will make it more usable all year round rather than just for production and then the birds can only use the edge where the woody cover is. So we can increase usable space year round on this just with with manipulating some of the, the down trees that we're going to That needed to cut. be cut anyway. Yeah, they need to be cut anyway. It's just moving them to different places. So when we're talking about usable space for, for Bob Weiss, we're, we're talking about the, the, the grasses and forbs, the bare ground, but the woody component with the woody structure is super important. And so this 40-acre field at this time of the year with the, with the way the woody structure or the woody cover was, was spatially on the landscape, there was none out in the middle. So the middle part of that open grassland was essentially not usable space. And so Kyle and I always are talking about maximizing usable space is the key to maximizing your quail abundance. And so by creating these down tree structures or these plum plantings or these shrubby plantings within an escape distance for quail, so so an escape flight, so we're talking every 70 yards or so. You know, it doesn't have to be exact. You don't have to measure it. But something around that ballpark scattered throughout the landscape, then quail don't have to fly a quarter mile from one thicket to the next. We don't want that to happen. We want them to be able to get up, get out of sight, dive into a thicket, get away from a hawk, get away from whatever's after them. I think that it's, it's important for us to reiterate the fact as we're talking about the property size here with with this individual parcel, you know, we're talking 80 acres, okay, and then kind of just imagining, you know, that 40-acre chunk split, and, you know, we got two separate parcels, but they're still the same parcel. When we're talking about quail being there, it's not – it's important that we say that 40 acres and this 80-acre chunk – is part of a greater neighborhood of productive acres. It's not just an isolated 40-acre chunk in, uh, let's just say, the middle of Tennessee that, oh, I've got quail now. It, it's it's important to realize that neighborhood and have the realistic expectations that, yes, there's, there's enough surrounding birds around here that if that habitat is in place, this landowner's always going to have birds. And, and so if you're out there thinking, oh, I've got 40 acres, I could devote to doing the same habitat work that I, you know, I want deer too. What would you guys say to that? In, in this guy's case, absolutely has quail on three sides of him. 
Yeah. Uh, three sides of this 80, maybe on four, but for sure three sides. Adjacent, like the, right here. Right here, across the road. Yeah. There's quail there. I'm positive. I would be willing to turn a bird dog out on three sides of this guy's I place, would spend so. a day. If he bet me, <laughs> I would I would happily do that. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, in that regard, I don't know that there's some magical, you know, it has to be a, a thousand acres within the landscape. Yeah, or what that what that number is, but certainly, yeah. If, if you're going to just be in the the mid, deep in the middle of the Ozarks of South Missouri and say, "Hey, I've got this one forty acre open field amongst twenty thousand acres of solid closed canopy timber," yeah, we probably can't grow a lot of quail in that one forty acre sure, field. So sure, it's all relative to the surrounding landscape, and there's a bunch of research that proves. You know, the bigger landscape effect you have, the more your neighbors have and the more management or it increases everybody's numbers. It just makes sense. So birds can come and go and trade with the neighbors. And you're not you're not this island population that is just waiting for a storm to wipe you out. Sure. And then you're you're gone. You have a much more resilient population. Awesome. Well, what um, what else, guys, are, was it from the uh, consultation? What other aspects? I, I know one that I, I definitely want to hit on before we get going is um, the actual improving of the soil quality on the different parcel that was actually being actively farmed, the soil and water quality, um, because not only is that important to us to address and to recommend and point out, but it also has, the recommendation has a significant uh, factor in the managing of quail and improving habitat for white-tailed deer and wild turkey. We're getting ready to go through a toll, so if you hear background noise, ignore it. Yeah, so on the the parcel that had the ag ground, uh, across the road from this parcel, there was some CRP grass. There was some pretty good shrubby cover. So there was probably a covey or two using that. And he has birds that are using the ag ground in the summertime for whistling. And, and, and he hears them about every year. But he wanted birds to, to utilize this property. So what we recommended is some connecting corridors or buffers along the edges of of these crop fields so there was a crop field edge right next to a creek uh, a creek drainage that would be excellent connecting corridors to connect the neighbor's native grass and and woody cover and probably potential quail population over to him and so the birds would not only come over onto his property to whistle but they would also nest on his property and have little ones on his property and then stay the winter so we recommended that from a quail perspective uh, just to be able to get quail on his property knowing in an ideal world if we were going to have maximized quail there we would look at whole field conversions to native warm season grasses and forbs but knowing that that this was was this agricultural component was was a huge part of their farming operation knowing that they wouldn't they wouldn't agree to whole field conversions. We talked about the buffers. Well, the buffers were going to do another important component. Kyle, well, you know, I'll let you talk about that. Not only were they going to help our quail habitat and get quail there, 
they were going to offer some other critical ecosystem services. Yeah, on this these crop fields, they were had some pretty significant erosion gullies and some pretty significant head cuts um, that you know had probably been formally contained. Describe real quick what a head cut is to those who are listening. So that's that ditch, you know, that's cutting down to the creek that's got the two or three foot drop, the the cliff, right? And that goes straight from the field right into the bank of the creek. Yep. Well, then that, that head cut just keeps working its way further from the creek. It's always hungry for soil, and it's always cutting further like, back. It's like a I Pac-Man. Mean, Niagara Falls is just a giant example of mm-hmm. a head cut, and over millions of years it's actually moved mm-hmm. a long ways. But So, well, some of these cuts, these, these erosion gullies that used to be contained to the riparian zone are now out into the crop field. Yep. And that alone is, is not good. So regardless of the quail, sure, we, we want to try to make these corridors and help have some permanent habitat on this this place and try to keep some quail here year-round. But, man, just general soil conservation, water quality, land ethics. So these buffer strips will filter some of that runoff Absolutely. And, and reduce sediment going into the creek, which is, is good for his water quality. It's good for the neighbors downstream. I mean, these are things that, you know, he's got. This is legacy uh, stuff yeah. that's going to make a lasting impact. He's talking about his kid inheriting this some yeah. day. I mean, this just general land ethic, it's the right thing to do. We, You're going to wake up 50 years from now and, and be missing several feet of topsoil. That Feet of topsoil uh, and acres of field. Yeah, that's, that's just <laughs> not good. So they, these kind of practices, it filters out, you know, chemicals. It filters out fertilizer in the runoff there's all kinds of benefits to these these buffer strips and pollinators you know the list goes on and on and on absolutely and, and from a, the whitetail side of things you know it a lot of the property itself you know, the cover w- was relatively limited so you can only do so much so you know naturally you look at it and you're like oh yeah that, that's a travel corridor so we're not just improving you know, soil quality and water quality, but we're creating these large corridors to slow deer down and provide some additional cover for them to hopefully bed or the additional forage um, or to have a fawn and rear a fawn in, um, as well as nesting habitat for turkeys, um, brood rearing cover for turkeys, and for quail as, uh, as like. So it's so dynamic of that one simple um, suggestion, but it affects so many different aspects of the farm, and really almost every aspect of the farm, from the standpoint of the the income, the productivity, and then all the elements we've we've just been talking about. Everything this guy wanted to accomplish with quail potentially gets met with the buffer strips. Deer, uh, it's going to improve his habitat, Check. give him some bedding areas. Check. Hunting strategy. Uh, instead of just having deer pass through, now they actually stay on him more. Mm-hmm. Not worried about the neighbors shooting them as much. So, yep, once again. And these are the lowest exactly. productivity acres. Exactly. You're not getting 200 bushel corn right no. next to the trees. 
in the riparian zone. So even in in the snow today, you could look at the stubble, the density of the whether, whether it's bean stubble or corn stubble, and clearly see that these areas were much lower production than the center of the field. So by the time you look at input costs, evaluate that for those acres, what you're doing, the time, the energy, the the diesel fuel, everything. Those acres are costing you money most likely to be able to plant, and they're sensitive to the actual water and soil quality, and additional habitat can be placed there. And the habitat we're recommending is through a federal government program that then writes a check. <laughs> so <laughs> For those getting, acres that you took out of production. paid to not farm them in mm. acres that mm. was probably operating in the red yeah. because the input costs were probably higher than the yield. Sounds like a no-brainer. I'm not a smart guy, but I'd do it. Yep. So that's that was a, a big component, honestly, of that farm. It's not obviously the only recommendation. There was a lot of a lot of TSI and a lot of edge feathering. Um, and, and really, any of the, the properties we went to um, had a, a large edge feathering component. Obviously, guys who are listening, we talk about edge feathering all the time and what it can do for, for the whitetail side of things, steering deer, this and that. But for, for your perspective, um, and it, I think especially in this ecosystem or landscape, we talked about it. We were kind of down in a low, low-lying area. Um, and just over time, because of the fire suppression in this large prairie ecosystem, we were seeing species uh, of trees, let's say a hedge, locusts, elm species that were, this was once open and now it has now, they're young trees, what, maybe 20, 30 foot tall and very low value stuff, but it was taken over prairie where fire is now not a, as much of a uh, factor there in the landscape of managing it, but this whole edge feathering and chainsaw work, well, what is it going to do to the restoration of those acres and then for the benefit of the quail side of things? Well, what will happen immediately is you'll get sunlight to the ground, and sunlight is is an energy source, and so you're going to get an immediate flush of all of these critical forb species that are so important for the, the animals that, that we're, we're concerned about. They provide great forage for white-tailed deer, wonderful forage. They provide screening cover and insects for turkey poults, for quail chicks, and then they provide abundant winter food for turkeys and quail. So that's going to just help restore... Because those species are in the root bank, they're in the seed bank. Mm-hmm. They're just being suppressed by all these trees that are 15 to 30 years old and historically weren't there. There's some giant bur oaks that were cool. There's some oh, giant beautiful. cottonwoods that were there. Like Kyle said, some Indians slept under this cottonwood tree sometime. <laughs> and that probably happened. Uh, so those trees historically were there, but the fire would have crept down into those areas and kept it free from hackberry and elm and and horse hedge wasn't an issue back then and, and there would have been this vibrant forb matrix between the grasslands and and this riparian area of, of bur oak and, and cottonwood that's what's missing that is a component that all of our species that we care about are, are critically need and that's what edge feathering 
and timber thinning would immediately do for that property. And, and when we say edge feathering, yeah, there are some areas that probably, it wouldn't really be edge feathering. It would, let's say, probably classify as TSI because it's a little bit larger of an area. But a lot of it was just the edges around these streams. And, and, and it would definitely classify, and you're just basically eating back um, or taking back, restoring what used to be that habitat way back when. But without a doubt, we've got several species that will drastically benefit from it. Some of those edges had, uh, you know, 10 plum stems there that were yes. that were only waist high. They were yes. just struggling, Suppressed. trying. I said, man, all you got to do is cut down these three trees, treat the stumps, and this turns yeah. into a perfect plum thicket. So Absolutely. all of a sudden, a deer lays in it or a covey of quail uses it. I, I mean, saw that many times. You, you roll right off that slope of basically the pasture into these areas, and, and 20 yards in, you still have that shrub component, but it doesn't look like a shrub, but those species are there, and it's like I said, the single stem, and, and you're like, man, this could all just, I could have just walked through 20 yards of shrubs yep. if, if we do this work, and that's what will come back. It's right there. It's present. It's right before your eyes. What, are, what other you know, kind of recommendations, guys, do you guys have um, before wrapping this podcast up or just general thoughts of the area or things that you saw that you know, might be applicable to someone else who, who's listening um, to this podcast? Well, one of the things that, that I saw, and I think Kyle would agree, I hope he would, that one of the things that, that we see. Probably not. Probably not, just out of spite, <laughs> yeah. right? He would say, no, you're wrong. But we see, and on this property was the same, is just a lack of forbs. Forbs mm. are so important. Forbs are critical for, for and, I, and I talked about it earlier, of all the species that, that we're really are, are concerned about, uh, forbs get a bad name because um, weeds, you know, western ragweed. You know, who wants ragweed on their property? Well, I do because it's great. It's, it's a great food uh, in screening cover th- throughout the, the winter and, or excuse me, summer and, and and late fall months and it produces a great nutritious seed so um, but we see a lack of forb abundance and a lack of disturbance all across the landscape and that's one of the things that that we noticed on this farm uh, in certain places that we can really address with some some proper fire timing some addition of fire or some tweaks with the grazing scheme yeah a lot of properties that we see both public and private um, suffer one of two things. Lack of disturbance, so especially for quail, so we don't have the forbs and we don't have the bare ground. It's just all grass. Mm-hmm. Or overly disturbed. And typically that's because it's massive stocking. Way it's overgrazed. Yep. And so now we've got too much bare ground and not enough everything else. So... Um, He's he's really close. He's right on the spot on on one property with, like we said, the the grazing stocking rate, and, and really close on another. And we had some buffer strips on on the ag landscape, and I think he's going to be in good shape. I think so too. And, and to kind of, I don't want to put words in his mouth, um, but you guys can kind of back me up on on what he said there at the end of the consultation as they're kind of parting ways was. You know, he found a lot of value in, in obviously having us there, this and that. But it was it was a further confirmation of a, a direction that he wanted to go and a thought that he had. 
And so having us there on site confirmed everything for him. And he knew now, okay, this isn't going to be just a wasted effort. I'm close. I need to fine-tune it. And you brought a lot of things to my attention. But I really am close. There's a lot of hope. And there, and there's there's a lot of effort that's going to go into this. And most likely, if I do this from what you guys are saying, I will see the return and the value that I'm looking to get out of the property. I'll have that. I'm staring it at the face. I'm looking at it in a couple of years and, and knowing, hey, I, I can I can do this. And, and that confidence, I think, is really important to be able to supply to people when they get this plan back. And they're looking at it like, oh, my gosh, that's a lot of work. You have to be confident knowing that these steps are, are going to get you there or really get you get you really close you know if you got realistic expectations and goals you have to have that to to get started and and fuel your way through it because at the end of the day he's got a lot of chainsaw hours ahead of him he's got a lot of herbicide work ahead of him he's got cedar cutting he's got burning but in the long run this is what he wants and this is the plan to get him there and the reality is hey some of these properties um you know it didn't get out of whack just last week Mm mm-hmm it took a decade or two of neglect in some cases where the cedars right. are on. So, yeah, it may take you a few years to get through the plan to get things reclaimed or back sure. back to where you want. That's just part of the deal. Um, but that's okay. We we operate on that every day. Daily. At work on public lands, mm-hmm. private lands, that's just part of the deal. Yep. Long-term commitment, but it's worth it. That's it. That's it. Well, guys, I, I had a blast and. uh hope you guys enjoyed the the consultation too and if there's anyone out there listening that's interested in um, having these guys out whether it is for a whitetail side of things wild turkey or um, the upland feature that they provide um, I, I think I think everyone's gonna be super happy when you guys arrive and, and show up on, on a property it's gonna be awesome um, bring a lot of knowledge to the table so um, if you have any questions like that, guys, reach out. Go to the consultation tab on uh, the website and uh, go through the contact page there. Send us, a, send us an email. We'd love to um, get in touch with you guys and, and um, work with you and help you out, just like we did today for a gentleman in north-central Kansas. But appreciate everybody listening. And uh, if it, he just cut me off, didn't he? Yeah. Wow, yeah. that was rude. Let's sign off so we can stay alive. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Jeez. Well, we'll, we're going to try to make it home so we can have another (laughs) podcast next week. (laughs) But um, appreciate you guys listening, and uh, we'll catch you next week if we make it home safely. See (laughs) you.